Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha Panchakapati Vishaki Pisandavi Vatapati Tanam Pavanavya Vaishnavi Mama Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's April 22nd, 2020, giving class over East Sangha from Hillsborough, North Carolina. And we're looking, this is the appearance day of Gadadhar Pandit. And it's also Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 20, which is Lord Vishnu's appearance in the sacrificial arena of Maharaj Prithu, text 4. Okay, Mahalakshmi, we can hear your Spanish in the whole thing, so I'm not sure how you want to adjust that. Yeah. Okay. Purushayari Muyanti. Twadrisha Deva Mayaya. Shama Eva Paramjato Dear Gaya Vridasevaya Please chant Persons Yadi If Muyanti Become bewildered. Twadrishaha. Like you. Deva. Of the Supreme Lord. Mayaya. By the energy. Shamaha. He wants to be sure that he can talk Exertion. Eva. Certainly. Param. Only. Jataha. Produced. Dirghaya. For a long time. Unmuted. Dirghaya. Yes, sorry, I muted everything. For a long time. Vidhasevaya. By serving the superiors. Srila Prabhupada's translation and purport. If a personality like you, this is the Lord speaking to King Prithu. If a personality like you, who are so much advanced because of executing the instructions of the previous acharyas, is carried away by the influence of my material energy, then all your advancement may be considered simply a waste of time. So those of you familiar with the Bhagavatam, you'll notice in the third line, Shrama Eva, and it will remind you of the verse in the first canto, Shrama Eva Hikavalam, that if you don't develop love for God, everything is a waste of time. Srila Prabhupada's purport. In this verse, the word Vridha Sevaya is very significant. 
Vridha means old. Sevaya means by service. Perfect knowledge is acquired from the acharyas or liberated souls. No one can be perfect in knowledge without being trained by the parampara system. Prithu Maharaja was completely trained in that line, therefore he did not deserve to be considered an ordinary man. An ordinary man who has only a conception of bodily existence is always bewildered by the modes of material nature. Purusha muyanti so before we read the translation again, let's just give a little, a little bit of background information. So Maharaj Prithu was trying to do a hundred horse sacrifices. Indra had stolen the horse for the hundredth sacrifice. And there was this whole thing going on. Indra kept getting disguises as if he was a saintly person. And uh, Prithu Maharaj's son would go after Indra in disguise. And then, you know, it was, it was just this whole thing. Again, Indra would take another disguise and another disguise. And every time Indra took a disguise, he was creating another irreligious system. Uh, it, was, it was just a mess. And finally, uh, it, it just all came to a halt. And Lord Vishnu then came with Indra to the sacrifice of Prithu and said, please forgive Indra and just don't do the hundred sacrifices. Which is, it's interesting because Indra was the wrongdoer here and not Prithu. And Lord Vishnu could have said to Indra, hey, just cut it out, leave Prithu alone. Okay, Prithu, now I've uh, chastised and removed Indra, now you go on with your hundredth sacrifice. But instead, he said to Prithu, look, just forgive him and forget about the hundred sacrifice. And, and it's a very interesting phenomenon. It's not what we would expect an authority to do. We would expect an authority to take the side of the wronged person and to look for some kind of recompense. And it's just not what happened at all. And here is one of the explanations that the Lord is giving to Prithu Maharaj as to why he should just be satisfied with 99 sacrifices and forgive Indra, no longer try to punish him or kill him. So read this translation again. If a personality like you, Prithu, who are so much advanced because of executing the instructions of the previous Acharyas is carried away by the influence of my material energy, then all your advancement may be considered simply a waste of time. So he's appealing to Prithu Maharaj, hey, you know, you're supposed to be a spiritually advanced person. And again, he could have appealed to Indra and said, you're supposed to be a devotee, why are you acting like this? But instead he appealed to the victim. You're supposed to be a spiritually advanced person, why are you trying to punish Indra? Why are you trying to kill Indra? In, instead of that, you should just let this go. Just, just let it go and, and don't, don't try to push something that is going to get Indra to become more and more angry and more and more defensive and more and more frightened and cause more and more trouble. And I'm, I'm sure we've experienced this kind of thing in our own life that someone's doing something wrong, but the more we try to correct it, the more they dig in, the more they defend themselves, the more they, they cause trouble. Right? And any of us who've maintained a long-term relationship with anyone has come to the conclusion, at least sometimes, 
that the relationship is more important than being right. And that there, it doesn't matter relationship with an employer, with a coworker, with a spouse, with a child, uh, with a friend, with, with anyone. That we just make a decision sometimes, you know, my relationship with this person is more important than being right because if I try, and here Prithu was absolutely right and Indra was absolutely wrong. There was no fault on Prithu's part at all. Because if we try to force being right on somebody who's not willing to accept it, they will fight back, and in their fighting back, they will cause more and more and more and more trouble. And we see this principle in like not preaching above somebody's level or not trying to preach the glories of the Holy Name to the faithless. I'm sure we found this in, in trying to convince anybody of anything, that if they really don't want to be convinced, they'll fight back harder and harder, and they'll use lower and lower and more and more underhanded methods of fighting, and it just it just causes such a disturbance. And so many times we just have to say, you know, look, yeah, sure, you're right, whatever. I'm just not going to push this. Uh, even if it's something that we wanted or something we needed, this was something Prithu Maharaj uh, apparently needed for his service, but still, fine. And, 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 I mean, after all, his service is given to him ultimately by Lord Vishnu, and so if Lord Vishnu is saying, hey, 99 is enough, <laughs> you don't really need to do 100, then, then 99 is, is enough. Now, let's look here at, it's really, this is really fascinating, this Shrama Eva being applied to a genuine spiritual process. So this is the argument Lord Vishnu's making to Prithu, the logical scriptural argument he's making to get him to cease and desist and to back down, even though he's in the right. He's saying that, hey, you've done a bona fide process. It's eternal. It's vrita. It's old. You have been sevaya. You have not only is the process old, the process is, is vrita. But you've been doing this process. You've been sevaya, dear Gaya, for a long time. You've been very faithful in following an ancient process for a long time. Hmm? Why make it useless? Why make it shrama? Why make it just unnecessary work? If you're not detached, if you're not forgiving, uh, then it's everything you've done is useless. You will have, have thrown away all your energy that you've put in for such a long time following something bona fide. And, you know, when we, when we talk about Shrama Eva Hikevalam in the first canto, we think of that as being applicable to materialistic life. Well, if I engage in materialistic life and I don't come to spirituality, it's just a waste of time. You know, I'm, I'm a good son or daughter, I'm a good husband, wife, a good parent, I'm, you know, a good citizen, good employee, and so forth and so on. But if I don't develop love for Krishna, right? Krishna says, That whatever we're doing, if, there's, if it's not connected with the Lord, if it's not faithful with the Lord, then it's, it's just useless. It's, it doesn't really accomplish something. And we spoke about this the other day uh, at the Hillsborough Temple. You know, that... It, it, we don't want to just put in energy for nothing. 
that one of my old high school friends had written, well, why should we help sick people? He was talking about the pandemic, and he said, why should we help sick people if it's their karma to be sick? And I said, well, on the karmic level, if you help people, if you make an effort to help people, you get good karma. You can't really change their karma. If they're going to get well, they're going to get well. If they're going to die, they're going to die. They're going to get sick, they're going to get sick. You, You really can't affect that. But by making an effort to affect that, you give yourself good karma. And if you act as the agent of someone's bad karma, if someone's destined to lose their money and you go in as a thief to steal it, then you get bad karma. So really the only person you're helping or hurting is yourself on the karmic level. But I said there's a level beyond karma. Karma isn't everything. There's a level of love. There's a level of of service to the Lord. There's the, the level of grace. There's a level of mercy. And when I act as an agent to give people bhakti, uh, Bir Krishna Swami was talking about this this morning, that when I act as an agent to give people bhakti, Krishna's mercy follows the mercy of the devotee. So when a jiva acts as the Lord's agent to give people bhakti, then people get bhakti, which, which they don't deserve. It's not their karma. <laughs> it's not their destiny. I'm, I'm actually becoming then the agent. I become really the doer, and I'm able to give somebody something that they do deserve. So normally we think of this Shrama Evahi Kevalam as applying to the realm of karma, where everything is ultimately a waste of time. I mean, we could say, well, it's, if you've got to be in the material world anyway, I'd rather be rich and beautiful and healthy and famous and whatever than, you know, poor and ugly and infamous and sick. So it does matter. But it, it's all a dream. You know, whether you have a nice dream, you know, sometimes I have nice dreams and sometimes I have not nice dreams. But ultimately, neither of them have any meaning. They just don't have any meaning. You know, if I have a dream that a criminal's chasing me with a gun, I wake up and I'm in the same bed as if I have a dream that I'm in a beautiful garden. You know, it, it, it really, it, it's meaningless. So usually we use it for that, but in this case, the Lord himself is using this Shrama Eva to apply to the process of bhakti, to apply to the process of following the parampara with, with seva for a very, very long time. And that's because there, there has to be something else going on here besides just following the process. Well, we're going to look at the three things that make a real spiritual process. How do we know we're in a real spiritual process? How do we know it's not going to be just useless? Because, you know, I, I thought if I'm, if I'm not a materialist, if I'm following a spiritual process, well, then it's all valuable. It's, it's not in that realm of just throwaway karma. So let's look at the three things. So first thing is this vrita, that it has to be old, it has to be ancient. Now, this vrita can apply to people, you know, like old people, but the Lord here is not saying, you know, you followed a bunch of old people. That's not, that's not his point. And it's not that just because somebody's 80 that they're more worth following than someone who's 18. I mean, Sukadeva Goswami was only 16. But he's meaning, as Prabhupada's talking about in the purport, something that is ancient, something that doesn't have a beginning. You know, sometimes we, we may present, oh, the Bhagavad Gita was spoken 5,000 years ago. But there's at least one time when Prabhupada was talking to a devotee who said that, and Prabhupada said, no, it is eternal. Now, of course, the Bhagavad Gita is not 
when Krishna says, I spoke this to the sun god Vivaswan, Krishna wasn't talking to Vivaswan about Drishtajumna, right, and Shikandi, and probably wasn't saying to the sun god, stand and fight, prepare to kill your enemies. Probably wasn't saying that to the sun god. So there are certainly aspects of the Bhagavad Gita that are not the same. But the principles of the Bhagavad Gita, the teachings about karma yoga, jnana yoga, dhyana yoga, bhakti yoga, are, are eternal. Those principles are eternal. They are vridha, they're very old. So truth is unchanging truth. There is a truth that is always true. That is true in all times, as Krishna says in the fourth sloka of the Chatur Shloki of the Bhagavatam, search for this in all times, in all places, in all circumstances. So there's a truth that is what I like to call transcontextual. It exists regardless of context. It exists regardless of who's there, who's not there, what kind of body they have, what planet they're on, what universe they're in. Are they in the material world? Are they in the spiritual world? It is always true for everybody at all times. And this idea of, of transcontextual truth is one way that we can define Siddhanta. There are other meanings of the word Siddhanta, but this is one definition. A universal truth. Now, by the way, there aren't that many universal truths. And it's not that every verse in the scripture is directly speaking about universal truth. You know, when Krishna says to Arjuna, stand and fight, that is not a universal truth because, like, right now I'm sitting down and I'm not fighting with anybody. And, you know, it's, it's not that when Krishna says, stand and fight, that that means all jivas for all time in all places need to be in a vertical position with a weapon in their hands. Uh, that, that's, so it's not talking about something that's beyond context. That stand and fight is a, an application of, of, a, not of a transcontextual truth. So when we're looking for a real spiritual process, it has to contain at its core and very prominently these transcontextual truths. And they have to be uncovered, right? Ganakarma anavritam. That thing, the things that are transitory and that support universal truths have to not cover it. So gyan, karma, yoga in this world, they can't cover it. And we find with many religious systems that jnana, karma, and yoga end up covering those eternal truths. You know, people talk about family values in the United States and a lot of Christian groups to the point that it covers the eternal truths that Christ was teaching. You know, Christ was not teaching an eternal truth of family values. He says, one who loves his mother, mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. I was one man going to a funeral, I think it was Simon, and he said, let the dead bury their dead and you come with me. So as soon as, of course, yes, we should honor our father and mother, for example, is in the Bible, but if you honor your father and mother more than devotion to God, then you've covered the universal ancient truths with something that's supposed to be supportive. So this is the first thing, that it has to be eternal and it has to have come down without being covered. 
this is the idea of the parampara. Of course, we can say, well, doesn't it always get covered? And yeah, yeah, yada yada yadarmasya glani bhavati bharatabhutinamadarmasyatadamanamshrajamyaham. That Krishna says when dharma, when something that's normally dharma becomes a dharma, then he's got to fix it. And we all have this, just like we have to wash our clothes. You know, I put on my clothes in the morning and they're clean. And then, you know, I'm eating pasta with tomato sauce and all of a sudden, oops, it's not clean anymore and I have to clean it. Right? Or you clean your floor. I mean, today I cleaned up, I swept and washed all the floors. And as soon as you sweep and wash the floors, then immediately you're like, where did that dirt come from? I just swept and washed the floor and there's, there's some dirt on the floor. So such a thing happens in this world with religion. It constantly is getting covered and constantly has to be purified. It, I mean, it's a very, very frequent process that has to be purified. So anyway, this is the first thing. It's got to be ancient. It's got to be the ancient universal truth. It can't be um, something that's made up. It can't be something that's, that's just relative and contextual. Then the second thing is that you have to actually practice it. So there we have this Vrita Sevaya, so Prithu is not only, it's not only a Vrita, it's not only an old system, but he's Sevaya and Durgaya for a long time. It's not just something that he does occasionally. It's not like, well, I'm going to go to church on Christmas, I'm going to go to the mosque on, on Id, you know, I'm going to go to the temple for Janmastami, and the rest of the time... I'm, no, it's, there's, there's, there's a determined effort for a long time that one will follow. And we could say this is belief and practice. You know, philosophy and practice. Um, a pejorative way of talking about it would be dogma and ritual. But it's it, the, the, whether you're going to put a negative spin on the words or a positive spin on the words, it's what are the eternal principles that you believe to be true and that you structure everything in your life around these principles of truth. And eternal principles are like we are a soul, there is a God, the purpose of life is to love and serve God, those are eternal principles and then what do you do with it do you just believe it you know we call that the platform of adushradha yeah i believe in god <laughs> you know do you believe in god yeah i believe in god do you believe there's a way to approach him yeah i believe there's a way to approach him well are you doing anything well, no i'm not doing anything you know i i may believe i may accept it as a fact that there's a road that travels from here to California, but I'm not on the road. I'm not using the road. I, I just accept it, it's there. It doesn't inform anything. And to take the next step, Sadhu Sangha, you start hanging out with people who are on that path and not so much hanging out with people who aren't, and then Bhajana Kriya, Kriya is action, you start going on the path. You start doing something, and generally it takes... Uh, generally it takes a long time I mean it's possible to completely traverse the path in a moment that's possible uh, because we're all originally Krishna conscious so it is certainly possible with full surrender in a moment to come to that original state in a moment but for most of us it's a long process for most of us we're we're very hesitant to give up our false ego, which false ego means how we identify ourselves materially. We identify ourselves according to our roles, 
we identify ourselves according to our emotions, our character traits, our status. In, in so many ways, we have a self-identity, and we're loath to give it up. Uh, we, we feel that it's quite painful to give it up. And to really identify Jivira Sorapaya Krishna Nichidasa, to really identify like that, that takes for most of us, for most of us it takes many lifetimes of practicing this. So this is the, the first thing was it had to be an eternal process, an old process of universal truth. And the next thing is we have to actually do it. There has to, and there has to be, of course, something to do. <laughs> you know, it can't just be a theoretical construct. And the third thing is what Lord Vishnu is emphasizing in this verse. And in some verses, we emphasize the other two. In some verses, some parts of the Shastra, some purports of Srila Prabhupada or Acharyas, the emphasis is, hey, make sure this is the, an ancient, original, universal process. Don't follow something that's a modern concoction. Sometimes we emphasize the second thing. Make sure you're following it. Make sure you're really practicing it. But in this verse, we're emphasizing the third thing, that if you do those two things, and you haven't done the third thing, it's all useless. It's all useless. Now, by the way, that's true in general. So if you did the third thing, <laughs> if you did the third thing, and you didn't do the other two, it's also useless, because you remain in the realm of karma. So what is this third thing? He's saying, don't get carried away by Deva Mayaya. Now that, that's kind of interesting. I mean, here is God talking. All right? And he's saying, um, don't get muyanti, don't get confused by my own energy. Don't get confused by my own energy. I, I think of it like, you know, there's a magician, a master magician, speaking to his or her assistant, saying, you know, don't get bewildered by my illusions. And of course, it's interesting that Prithu, who's a great devotee and a Saktivas avatar, could even get bewildered. Of course, Krishna sometimes likes to get bewildered by his yoga maya, but he's saying you shouldn't be bewildered. So the third thing is that we become free from the bewilderment of the external energy. Now, very specifically, what the Lord's referring to in this very, very specific story, this is what's happening right here, right now, with Prithu and Indra, is to be forgiving and to be detached. Now, we'll look at each one of them. So on the forgiving side, uh, Indra really messed up here. Indra really messed up it. You know, Prithu's trying to do something in the Shastra. He's trying to do it to please the Lord, to please the Brahmanas. He's not doing it for his personal aggrandizement. Uh, It's what he's supposed to do. It's his duty to do. And Indra's just really messing it up. You know, he, he keeps preventing it from happening. And if we can think of the last time we were trying to accomplish something, something important, something good, something beneficial, something that we were supposed to do, it was our job, and somebody kept interfering with it. I mean, maybe it was, you know, for those of you who have pets, maybe it was a cat that kept jumping on your computer keyboard. You know, if you have children, maybe as it was a child, you know, knocking on your door and asking for things. Right? If you were dealing with some a boss, maybe it was a boss who kept interrupting your schedule. Maybe something just kept 
kept not working. Maybe it was a computer program that just kept not working. Right? I had this happen to me yesterday. I was trying to do something on my computer and there was something I just I just couldn't get it to work the way it was supposed to work. And how many times I would try, it just it just simply wouldn't work right. So, you know, when we were getting frustrated by something over and over again. You know, I've had this situation dealing with a customer service representative. You know, you're talking to the person on the phone and you're trying to get something done and instead of helping you to get something done, they're hindering you. They're telling you why you can't do it or they're putting you on hold for two hours or, you know, they're sending you to a so-called supervisor who also can't help you and then the supervisor sends you back to the first person and, you know... So in those sort of circumstances, we generally get frustrated. And we generally become angry if, it's a, if there's an individual. We generally become, after some time, angry at the person who is hindering us. And we may lash out at them. I mean, in this case, it was quite extreme that our Purdue's son went to kill Indra. So we don't usually, you know, go to kill the customer service representative or our dog or whatever, but... You know, we just, we want them out of there. We just, we, we want them just out of our space. We want them, you know, out of our life. We want them to go away, which is, I think, on a, on a subtle level, it's, it's like we're trying to kill them. But this uh, tendency, I'm trying to get something done. It's something that's important. It's something I'm trying to get done for Krishna. It's something I'm trying to get done for the good of the world. And, you know, I, I just can't do it that it's being, it's being hindered. So, you know, again, we tend to get very, very frustrated. And in this case, the Lord is saying, no, instead of being frustrated, be forgiving. Instead of being frustrated, be forgiving. You know, and that's, that's hard. That, that's really hard. You know, it, it's, it's a conflict between whose need is dominant. You know, here Indra feels that he has a need for uh, his the security that he's getting in his own situation. You know, he has some security by being Indra, by having his position. And from his perspective, Prithimarsh is a threat to his security. And so he's protecting himself. And he feels that protecting himself is makes the makes his dealings with Prithu stealing the horse, it justifies it. And then Prithu has a need as the king that he has to do the proper ceremonies and he has to do the, the proper sacrifices in the proper way and the proper number and so forth. And he's doing that for his service. So Indra's feeling, you know, I have to be here for my service and Prithu's feeling I have to be here for my service. And we see that if, if we look at it, most people who are impeding what we're doing are doing that because they have some kind of competing need. They have something that they feel is important enough to block what we're doing, and we think that we have something important enough to block what they're doing. You know, from Indra's perspective, Prithu is the offender. And one of the ways that we can become forgiving is to realize that, that uh, the person who's offending us, that from their perspective, we may be the offender. This is very common you know, with Indra and the Govardhan Leela, Indra thought that Krishna was the offender. The 
the sons of Dhritarashtra, they thought the Pandavas were the offender. So there's, it, it's almost always like that. That the person who's offending us is doing so because they feel that we're in their way. That we're doing something wrong. That we're not cooperative. And then of course people who are offending us they're again they're just trying to meet their own needs they're trying to get to live their life uh, they may be doing it in the wrong way they may be doing it in a very violent way they may be doing it in a criminal way uh, but they're just trying to live like everybody else and therefore when people are uh, harming us we should have a mood of forgiveness now forgiveness is often grossly understood it doesn't mean misunderstood. It doesn't mean that there's no criminal justice system. It's not that if somebody, you know, rapes you or rapes your kid or, you know, kills your spouse or burns down your house, that you just go, oh, that's okay. You're just trying to meet your needs. <laughs> uh, no, it's reported to the government and the government should take action. The government is supposed to be a neutral party where they just want peace and justice in society. They don't have a personal vendetta. And they're supposed to mete out justice. Uh, I mean, it doesn't always work that way, of course. But they're supposed to mete out justice in a neutral way according to the rule of law and not according to some, you know, personal emotion. So to have a, a functioning criminal justice system is definitely part of Vedic society. There's no question about it. And the, the rulers of society, I mean, here we have two rulers. Prithu is the ruler of earth. Indra is the ruler of heaven. But the rulers of society are supposed to punish criminals. There's a criminal law. There's criminal law in the Shastra, of course. There's ordinary criminal law in a country. So an attitude of forgiveness does not deny the fact that if somebody engages in criminal activity, that should be reported to the authorities and the authorities should take proper action. Uh, in it, but they're taking action in a de- emotionally detached, if they're doing their job properly, in an emotionally detached way because it's, it's their job, it's their service for the Lord. So the kind of forgiveness that we should have always with everyone is compassion for that person. Compassion for that person. That that person who did something wrong, first of all, they we should find that if they really did something wrong, it's not that everybody who bothers me is actually doing something wrong. I might, I might really be the offender. Uh, as I think all of us have discovered sometimes, that when I'm sure someone else is the offender, it turned out that I was the offender. That happened with Indra. Uh, he was so sure that the residents of Vrindavan were offending him, and then he was like, oops, it was me. Uh, so we should make sure. Uh, that's why there's a due, there's due process. But we should have compassion. We should have compassion. That the, this person who's offending me if they really are offending me, which, again, we don't want to assume that they're offending me just because I think they are, but that this person or persons who's offending me, they're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to meet their needs, they're trying to, to experience Ananda, you know, Satchit Ananda, uh, but they're just going about it in the wrong way. As Prabhupada talks about this preface for nectar devotion, they're trying to experience rasa, but they may not know how to do it. They, they just don't know how to do it. So... You know, to, to feel compassion instead of to feel offended. And one way that we can become free of feeling offended is not to be invested in the things of this world. If we're invested in Krishna and if we are convinced 
that Krishna is meeting all of our needs, that Krishna loves us, then we're not going to be very offended by things in this world. We're not going to be offended by people's foolishness. We're, we're just going to be compassionate. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that no specific justice should be done by the proper persons. But this attitude is essential for chanting Hare Krishna. Trinata Pisunichina, Tarur Ivasishina, Amanadam Manadana, Kirtaniya Sadahari. Without this attitude of not being offended by anybody, we, we can't progress in spiritual life. Therefore, Lord Vishnu is saying it's Shrama Eva, it's just useless. If you're going to go around feeling offended by people, then, you know, you can follow a, a bona fide process for a very long time and you won't get anywhere. It, it just won't get anywhere. You know, if we're like, oh, this person offended me and that person offended me and this person offended my friend and that person offended this friend and that person offended... You just don't get anywhere. It, it's all based on, on a material identity and an investment in the world and you just, you just don't make any progress. And, you know, we can blame other people that we haven't made progress or we can blame the process, but the process also involves cultivating this offenselessness. Lower than the grass. Lower than the grass means the grass pops up when you step on it, but just stay down. More tolerant than the tree. When the tree's thirsty, it doesn't say, please give me some water. And when the tree's cut, so we have an internal problem of thirst, it doesn't complain. An external problem of someone cutting it, it doesn't complain. And it still gives its shade and its fruits and its flowers to everyone. So that may sound very frightening, in this world, but without having that attitude, we cannot advance spiritually. We will reach a block. Bhaktivinoda identifies the third verse of the Shikshastika with being fixed, with being nishta. And everybody asks all over the world, all the time, how can I become fixed in my spiritual practices? How can I be steady? How can I be fixed? And nobody wants to hear the answer, which is to become lower than the grass and more tolerant than the tree to respect everybody without expecting any respect for oneself. That's a little circular, because we can only have that attitude when we surrender to Krishna, and we can only surrender to Krishna when we have that attitude. So it's it's a kind of thing that builds on itself. And it is very connected with the next main thing here that's being asked from Prithu, and that is detachment. Detachment from whether he did 99 sacrifices or 100 sacrifices. Detachment from who was the best, him or Krishna or, or Indra that his attachment had to be, is the Lord pleased with me? And the Lord's like, I'm pleased with you, Prithu. <laughs> because when we're attached, we can't be forgiving. Then we think, I've got to have this, and I've got to have this this way, and this person's impeding it. But when we're detached, you know, my only thing is in pleasing Krishna, then forgiveness is much easier. Now, today's the appearance day of Gadadhar Pandit. And there's, of course, many wonderful pastimes with Gadadhar Pandit. Um, one that I find particularly interesting for many reasons is his uh, dealings with Balabhacharya. So Balabhacharya had written a commentary on the Bhagavatam that he said surpassed that of Sridhar Swami and Mahaprabhu had said to him, if you're not, if, if you're going to try to surpass the Swami, then you're unchaste. You're, you're like a, a prostitute. So because the word Swami can also mean husband. You know, you're, you're adulterous. And that was, that's quite, was quite an insult. You know, this concept of being unfaithful, unchaste in that society. 
was, I mean, today, I don't know if anybody cares about it, but at, at least at that time, it was a very heavy, heavy insult. And so Bolivar was, was just crushed by this. He said, you know, Richard Tunney used to respect me. He used to treat me with respect. He used to treat me nicely. Now why is he saying that I'm unfaithful and I'm disloyal? And It was really bothering him. He wanted to prove that he, that he was good and that his commentary was good. And so he, he forcibly went into Gadadhar Pandit's house and started just reciting his commentary. Uh, you know, we've all been in an awkward situation where somebody kind of corners you and just starts talking to you about stuff you don't want to hear and you have, don't know any elegant way to get out of the situation. I mean, sometimes you're physically stuck, like you're sitting in a train seat or a bus seat or an airplane seat and you know, you're just stuck there. <laughs> and another time, socially, you're kind of stuck. I mean, in this case, Vallabhacharya was a very respectable person. So maybe you're socially stuck and you got to, I don't really want to listen to this, but here I am. So Gadadhar Pandit was, was stuck like that. And he was thinking, oh boy, you know, Lord Chaitanya didn't want to hear Balabacharya. And so the devotees are going to know that anyone who hears Balabacharya is contributing to this criticism of Sridhar Swami. And therefore, when they find out that I listened to Balabha's commentary, then I'm going to be criticized too. My <laughs> devotee a few months ago was telling a story how when he was one of the maybe third or fourth time he visited a Hare Krishna temple and was staying overnight, that he had a copy of the Bhagavad Gita translated by an impersonalist. And when one of the devotees found it, they literally threw him out of the temple. It was night, it was raining, and they made him go out in the dark and the rain. They said, you can't bring that book in here. You're going to have to leave. Right? Uh, so... Gadadhar Pandit was thinking, well, people are going to criticize me for listening to this book. But he didn't feel... Gadadhar Pandit is a very uh, non-aggressive. He has a very non-aggressive nature. He has a very compliant nature, very soft nature. And so he, he just didn't feel that he could go to Balaban and say, hey, yeah, you know, I really don't want to hear it. Can you please leave? Or even to make an excuse why I've got a meeting now. <laughs> Uh, so he, he was stuck. And then and and he thought, well, Lord Chaitanya, he's going to know that I was stuck. He's going to know that I, I was forced into this. But the other devotees may not know, and they may harshly judge me. So I find that, and, and they did. They did. The, the other devotees did harshly judge him, and he didn't, he didn't protest. Oh, he didn't protest that. And, I, I find I find that behavior very fascinating because we're told that by pleasing the devotees we please the Lord. But sometimes uh, the devotees may not be pleased with us. The devotees are not God, they may not know our heart, they may not know, may not know our circumstances. And sometimes the devotees may not be pleased with us even when Krishna is pleased. It does it does happen. And you know, we find that with Riddai Chaitanya and Shamananda, is a, which is a very extreme example. But we find this with Gadadhar Pandit, that Gadadhar Pandit was faithful, he was loyal, he was respectful, and still he was harshly judged due to some circumstances. So we, we find this example in, in Gadadhar Pandit of, of uh, detachment. He was detached, you know, he didn't want the devotees to criticize him, but he was detached. 
He knew I'm pleasing the Lord, and therefore I am going to excuse those who are criticizing me. I'm going to be detached from them. Like what Pritchard Maharaj needed to do. And he did, of course. That, uh, you know, I'm pleasing the Lord, and that's all right. I, I don't need to please everybody. I, I don't need to worry about what everybody thinks. I, I, I can be satisfied with pleasing the Lord. Mm. Uh, another interesting pastime with Gadadhar Pandit is when the Lord was traveling and Gadadhar Pandit wanted to come with him. Although Gadadhar Pandit had taken a vow of Kshetra Sanyas. So he'd taken a vow to stay in Jagannath Puri and serve the deity of Toda Gopinath. But he was so attached to Mahaprabhu that when Mahaprabhu left, that he also wanted to leave. And Mahaprabhu told him, go back, go back. And so then Gadadhar Pandit went on a parallel path. So, And then he met up with the Lord here I am, and the Lord said, I told you to go back. And it's interesting, the Lord said, okay, after a while, the Lord said, all right, you've gone so far from Jagannath Puri that you've broken your vow. Oh, you know, be happy now that you broke your vow for me, and, and now you need to go back. So this is the principle here that Gedanar Pandit showing is not to follow the rules for the sake of following the rules, Niyamagraha, but to follow the rules for the sake of the Lord. Again, this is Ishrama Eva, that if we don't please the Lord, if we don't come to the platform where our concern is to please the Lord, if we're still wrapped up in the things of this world, then although we may be following a process, it is useless. It's not really giving us the result. Now, I'd like to wrap up here by saying that although the Lord is, is being a little heavy here, Shama Eva, it's all useless. At the same time, it is a gradual process. So it's not that if I, you know, end up getting furiously angry at somebody today, that everything I'm doing is useless. That, oh, okay, I'm just going to give up my Krishna consciousness, I'm not going to chant anymore, I'm not going to read the Bhagavatam, it's all useless because I wasn't forgiven. Uh, that we also have to be forgiving with ourselves, and we also have to be detached from, you know, thinking that we're going to be a perfect devotee in the next five minutes. So this forgiveness and detachment also applies to ourselves because enthusiasm, patience, and confidence are all three there, and one of them is patience. And one of them is being patient with ourselves. Now, we should see that we are progressing over time. If we're not progressing over time, then we're doing something wrong and our process is useless. But having said that we are progressing over time, sometimes we're going to take a step back. Sometimes we're going to have a period of difficulty that is natural. And this happens even to the great devotees in the scriptures. That they have periods of difficulty, they have periods of doubt, uh, they may have periods of depression like Yudhisthira had. Uh, you know, we see this. And so we sh- it's not that we should just think, well, spiritual life's just going to be a straight-up line road. <laughs> no, it's going to be bumpy and, and turning and like that. But overall, we should be able to look and see that if I'm following a, an ancient process of universal truth, if I'm actually following, I'm actually doing the service for a long time, then I should be developing the symptoms and the ones. There's many symptoms, but the one we're looking, the ones we're looking at here, are forgiveness and detachment. So we have some time if anybody would like to ask questions. Muted. Unmuted. 
Hare Krishna. Okay. You said you were going to talk about three things. I got the third, uh, not becoming bewildered by the, or becoming free from bewilderment of the material energy. What were the other two? First of all, the process has to be ancient. So your spiritual process to be bona fide, it has to be original with the universe. It can't just be something made up. It has to be coming through parampara, and it has to be dealing with universal truths. So that's the first one. The second one is you have to actually follow it. You have to be doing some kind of service. It's that it can't just be theoretical. You know, I believe in Jesus. Okay, great. What are you doing? Nothing. So that's it. you have to actually be doing something. And then the third is you have to be developing these qualities. So for a spiritual process to be bona fide, the philosophy has to be ancient and dealing with universal truth. It has to provide some means of service and practice that you're doing, and then you need to be developing good qualities, which, again, we focused on these two today. Is that clear? Thank you. Thank you, Mother Irma, for being back with us again. Oh, such a, such a pleasure, such a pleasure. Um, my question is, a verse kept coming up over and over again today, that famous verse, I think it was Narda speaking, I'm not at my computer to look, but Dharma So, wouldn't it seem, it, it sounds a little extreme, it would seem that if someone is following Dharma Svanasutaskumsan, what it's following is his prescribed duty. Well, okay, maybe he doesn't come to the point of Mishrakshane Kitasya, no Jedi Ratim. If he doesn't start to develop some feeling for Krishna, a, a, a desire to hear the pastimes of the Lord, etc., says it's all a waste. But isn't it also a fact that just simply following Varnashram system, one may gradually elevate himself to the point where devotion begins to awaken? And maybe he hasn't developed that yet. It sounds extreme to say that the whole thing, that the whole thing, following your prescribed duty, is is not worthwhile or a waste of time. And the Gita Christian says that um, that uh, same idea by following by following one's prescribed prescribed duty, that um, one can attain all perfection. So, well, until until you actually come to that point, at least to a minute degree, the thing in and of itself has no value. Bhakti has value even when done very, very slightly. But material duties have no ultimate value until bhakti started to awaken. So if all they are doing is, is if you're still in the leading up to bhakti stage, there's no value yet. It may look like there's value. I mean, on the point of view of one's material experience, there's a lot of value. As I say, I'd rather be healthy than sick. I'd rather be rich than poor. I'd rather be famous than infamous. So on the material level, if you do good karma, you're going to have a happier life in the world. So you could say there's value in that way, but it's it's just a dream. But isn't that the point of the Varnashram system? To, to gradually... Though it doesn't always work out that way, but at least the, the, it's pointing and you're kind of working in the right direction to eventually come to bhakti. Even though what you're doing 
may in and of itself have no eternal value. Well, well the way the way I understand Varnashram is it's not that's it, that's not only the case. Varnashram done done properly should connect you with bhakti pretty much immediately. Hmm. So one of the principles of of let's just look at Varna Dharma. One of the principles of Varna Dharma is you're working for the satisfaction of the divine. You're working, as Prabhupada explained in the, that book he put together on Ramanan Sambad before he came to America, um, Tripura Swami had it published. I forget what it's called. Search for the Ultimate Goal of Life, I believe. So there Srila Prabhupada explains that even for the materialistic people, that their Varna Dharma is done as part of the universal body. That they're thinking of the Virat Rupa and how am I part of the universal body. And if they're not doing that, it's not really Varn Ashram Dharma. You know, everyone out there is doing some kind of Varna and some kind of life cycle thing. You know, everyone's doing something to maintain themselves, which fits, you know, with a few exceptions. Pretty much everything that someone's doing could fit into one of the four varnas in terms of the, the technical work. You know, there are some exceptions, but in general that's the case. And then people are somewhere in the life cycle. You know, they're studying or they're earning a livelihood and in some sort of a romantic relationship or they're retired or they're getting ready to die. So people are doing those sorts of things anyway. But as soon as you add the word dharma, it, it changes it. So Varn Ashram Dharma is not just, well, this life you can be a Shudra, next life you can be a Vaishnava, next life you can be a Ksatriya, next life you can be a Brahmin, after that maybe you can be a Vaishnava, or maybe you spend ten lifetimes at each stage. And, yeah. it's, it's not just that. Or, you know, go to school, learn how to be an electrician, and earn a lot of money, and enjoy your senses, and then retire, and then when you take sannyas, you're spiritual. But it's right here and now, how do I connect my place in the biological life cycle and how do I connect my livelihood with the divine in some way as the Virat Rupa, as Brahman, as Paramatma or as Bhagavan that there's some connection I mean, and even for ordinary people who aren't so much into being religious then they can collect, connect with the Virat Rupa and that's yeah, so it, it should be immediate that there should be some immediate connection with bhakti if it is varn ashram dharma. Uh, Because it's then connected with sanatan dharma. And without that, it's all just a bunch of external stuff that really doesn't mean much of anything. I mean, it's okay, you know, if one follows principles, of if one follows the non-spiritual principles of varna and ashrama, the world's a lot nicer place than if one doesn't. So, you know, that was so nice to hear the sounds of Hawaii. So that's that's also true. Like I've asked a number of devotee audiences, suppose the only change that happened in the world is that all husbands and wives were kind and loving with each other. Suppose we woke up tomorrow morning and the only thing that had changed is that every husband was kind and loving to his wife and every wife was kind and loving to her husband. Just that one thing. 
And everybody goes, wow, that would be huge. It would be a huge ripple effect in the world. The world would be a much nicer place to live for everybody. Or we could say, suppose everybody's means of livelihood was connected with their nature. That everybody, what they were good at and what they loved was also the way they maintained themselves. If we only made that one change, the, the whole world would change. It would be such a nicer place to live. So, you know, on one level, even if you apply the, the non-directly spiritual aspects of varna and ashrama dharma, you're going to have see a tremendous increase in peace and prosperity and, and happiness in the world. But it's a dream. I mean, Krishna wants people to be happy in their dream. It's not that he doesn't care. But it's, it's not really meaningful. It's like a parent wants the kid to be happy in their imaginary play, but it's not really meaningful. The parent really wants the child to learn how to function in society. They don't want them just to be happy in their play. Is that all right? That's a great answer. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for being with us. Oh, nice to hear your voice again after a while. So anybody else? We could take maybe one more question. Um, Mother Ermila, thank you so much for an excellent class. As Hi, Krishna. Uh, one of the last times you were on the Sangha, on the Sangha, and I don't recall if it was last year or the previous year, but you referred to a book that you were writing that uh, was part of a, a response to a question I had, uh, which was, you know, how do I just take my ordinary work and, you know, give the results to Krishna other than by contributing money and so, yes, and so yes, on. Yes. So they asked the progress of that book towards publication. Well, the progress of it is that the co-author, Rukmini Devi Dasi, a.k.a. Dr. Ruchira Dutta, and I are now going through the second edit. We worked with a professional editor, and we're looking at his second run-through edits, and we're responding to that and, and fixing up. I mean, the book is written. Uh, you know, we both have a lot of other things to do, so we have, let's see, what's our schedule for today? Ah, we're going to be working on that book today in an hour and a half. So we, we try to schedule sometime every day. We don't make it every day. Probably make it, I bet, every five out of seven days to, to work on it, to put in an hour or two and, and go through it. And just it's taking a lot longer than we thought it would take, but I think it's going to be much better for it. We've, we've got a lot of very high-quality input, and we're... I, I, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be I hope it's going to be something that will be valuable to the devotee community and to the world and in our book we're, we're just focusing on Varna we have one chapter on the relationship between Varna and Ashram but uh, we're, we're really just focusing on career and we've written it in language for the general public uh, if you're interested I just gave a series of six classes uh, based on the book at the Shivananda Ashram in the Bahamas. It's, uh, they're impersonalists, they're followers of Sankaracharya, but they often invite uh, personalists to come. They, many other ISKCON devotees have given classes there. They have a Facebook page, the Shivananda Ashram in the Bahamas, 
And if you look for the six classes, on, they're titled The Yogic Path of Right Livelihood. Uh, I, did give, I did recently give six classes on that book. So it's, and some of the feedback I got from the classes is helping inform, informing what we're doing going forward. How, how well was that attended despite the pandemic? Well, the pandemic was just... People were just starting to have lockdowns. So we had, uh, there were 200 people in each of the evening programs. And then they have a lot of things going on simultaneously. So I was getting 12 or 15 people during the daytime classes, which is what we expected for a seminar that wasn't charging. Because they had yoga training classes and all kinds of things. There were 200 people in the evening sessions each evening. And while I was there the leaders were having discussions about how to deal with the pandemic. And the class that was scheduled for right after me, the presenter did not come and was going to be presenting over Zoom. And if you look now at their videos, you see instead of 200 people, they have just their ashram residence. So they're just, you know, just a few people (laughs) sitting very widely apart. I mean, when I was there, there hadn't been any cases in the Bahamas at all. And uh, the borders had not. Now the borders are closed, but the borders were not closed. I was I was able to get out. So it was it was mid March. Things hadn't quite exploded yet. But when I came back to the states, I did go into a self isolation before I interacted with the devotees. I had a quick question. Has yeah. your appreciation for Shiloh Prabhupada's ability to translate so many books, so many volumes, while running a worldwide movement? With your uh, endeavor to uh, publish books, has it been enhanced? Of course. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Publishing books is a, is a lot of work. A lot of work. And trying to do that while you're running around the world is interesting. Anyway, I'm not running around anywhere right now with this pandemic. Thank you very much for inviting me back. And hopefully we'll be doing this every Wednesday, at least as long as I'm in a lockdown situation and not moving around. Thank you. Shula Prabhupada Ki Jai. Jai.